Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Yeah, the Mets made it even more clear. They're all in for 2022, uh, making a trade with the A's for right-hander Chris Bassett, uh, 33-year-old, and he's going to be a free agent after this season, so really one year of control. Uh, but he was considered basically their ace the last couple of years. Uh, late bloomer, came on after Tommy John surgery a few years ago. Uh, so he's he's not going to be a guy that uh, is gonna, may not be around for a long time, but he can help them win right away. He fits in nicely behind DeGrom and Scherzer. The Mets gave up JT Ginn, their top pitching prospect, but he's not really considered a high-end guy. He's more of a middle-rotation type of prospect, and they gave up uh, Adam Aller as well. He was a pitch, minor league pitcher of the year, but he's 12, 27 years old, not considered a blue chipper at all. Uh, but they don't have much in the minors in terms of uh, minor league pitching depth, so uh, that's they're going to have to figure that out going forward but right now we know it's all about 2022 and Bassett is a major move to help them in terms of that uh, depth in that rotation what's specifically um did you did you like about about Bassett wow I mean I got to see him a pretty good amount um in the AL West um and uh the pitch ability the ability to suppress hard contact uh you know uh pound the strike zone Sounds like no fear in him. Like there's a lot of, a lot of things. Um, and then, uh, and then just the, the person as a whole, as we, you know, again, kind of went through our process of, 
trying to understand what makes him tick a little bit. Seemed like a guy that that would that would fit here and 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 uh, you know relish the opportunity to pitch in this rotation too with uh, with the guys that we currently have. You know, it all looks good on paper. Hard to know, you know, what's what's going to happen in real life, right? So. You know, listen, I'm looking forward to a great season. I think we're going to be really competitive, and we'll see what happens. Steve, it was pretty obvious by the negotiations that you were being targeted in some way by your other owners with this fourth luxury tax threshold. What do you think about that? Well, listen, I mean, listen, $290 million is a lot of money to spend overall. And so, um, you know, like I said before, I'm okay with it. And... um, and I'm willing to live with it, and we'll leave it at It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, March the 13th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire if you want to interact with me. Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in our good friends over at the Fansided Podcasting Network. And check out the good folks over at RisingApple.com. Well, Buck Showalter said it's go time. And boy, after our uh, wrap-up of MLB Labor Peace, the 100 days of talking about collective bargaining and arbitration and service time... And wacky ideas of adding more postseason teams and yada, 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 and whether there'd be a season. Just a week ago, I was on this uh, very same program and talked about how I wasn't sure there was going to be a season. Well, there's going to be a season, and since about 7 o'clock, I guess on Thursday night, when the spigots were open for free agency, you've seen a frenzy of activity, and the Mets are no strangers to that. And you heard Steve Cohen say it, and he said it best. You know what? You want to have the Cohen tax? He said, listen, I could have a bridge named after me. You know how everybody hates bridges. There's always a bridge. And I, and at first I didn't get it, but then I said, you know, everybody hates bridges over here, especially in New York, because there's always traffic or something going on on them. But uh, but he also said the team looks good on paper. We'll see what happens. And uh, a big deal was made last night as the, the Mets acquired the arm that I think we all knew they needed in Chris Bassett giving up a couple of prospects, uh, most notably J.T. Ginn. I mean, I think offensively, even though Billy Epler said that uh, they're pretty much done with the offense, I, I'd like to – I have some concerns. I mean, you're re- especially with the DH, you're relying on some guys like Dom Smith and J.D. Davis and Robinson Cano, who hasn't played in a couple of years, that are coming off of down years. Jeff McNeil's coming off a of down year. You know, clearly you've upgraded with Starling Marte and Mark Canna and, and Eduardo Escobar. The bench, we'll see. I would like to see a little bit more offense, um, you know, maybe some veteran depth in the outfield. The bullpen, they got Adam Adovino. You know, look, uh, that's a Frisbee slider. It's like he's playing wiffle ball up there, and he certainly has the chops to pitch in New York. He pitched for the Yankees. He's from Brooklyn. He's from the area. Uh, maybe I would say he's an upgrade over Familia, who uh, we all know went to the Phillies, so it'll be interesting to see how that 
plays out. Uh, but I, they need another lefty. Uh, I, I know they've got some uh, minor league signing in the middle of all the lockout stuff. They uh, they signed uh, Alex Claudio, uh, an interesting left-hander. But I think they need a lo- another lefty. They've got Brad, both Brad Hand and Andrew Chafin on names they've been connected to. Uh, I like Hand. He was here last year. He has some closing experience. But Chafin, to me, is the better play because now with the three-batter rule, Chafin, if you look at him historically throughout his career, even when Hand was an elite closer, he was far better against lefties than righties. So uh, that might be the way to go. I know with the 290 and the super ultra Cohen tax, maybe that comes into play. You know, maybe Chafin gets competitive and he gets a multi-year deal. Most of the Mets bullpen are free agents after this season, if not all of them, I think. I'd have to look at that. Um, but the big news is they did what I was fearful of. Uh, you know, not what I was fearful of. The they, the one area I was fearful of, especially after Marcus Stroman signed with the Cubs, was they went out and they got themselves a pitcher, and they got themselves a pitcher who's still relatively young. Uh, you know, he's uh, you know in his uh, you know early thirties, ha- has uh, not a big history of success, but some success pitching the A's into the postseason. And when you start to break down, and I talked about this throughout the winter. When we, you know, even when the lockout started, we all knew the Mets needed a pitcher. They needed something. And we heard names like Luis Castillo, and recently we heard about Tyler uh, Male. We heard about Luke Weaver, Frankie Montas, Sean Manaya. Uh, and I kept saying to everybody, you know, Sonny Gray, who wound up getting dealt. Then you go and you start to look at the free agents that are out there, guys like Johnny Cueto, Michael Pineda, Zach Greinke, uh, guys like that, and... It made, and I remember saying this, it made the most sense to go after a Chris Bassett. I thought from a prospect capital, it wouldn't have, uh, you know, been as expensive. And, you know, when you start to break it down and you look at it, he might be the very best one out of all of them. He's a guy that, you know, had Tommy John surgery and when, uh, came back from that, you know, and, and hasn't pitched 30 starts in a season. But when Dave Stewart, a guy that, when you know anybody who's a baseball fan that was around in the '80s, or if you have any kind of concept of history, especially Oakland A's history, Dave Stewart was a gamer. He was a true ace. He was a guy that was a bulldog, uh, overcame a lot. You know, was basically a scrap heap pickup by the A's, and, and turned out to be uh, their ace for many, many years uh, during their uh, their you know mini dynasty and when they won their ch- championship in 1989. When he writes, "I love Chris Bassett, his leadership, competitive nature." The man that stopped losing streaks and the next day roots for his teammate. This man never makes excuses. He's a media delight, never dodges the tough questions, but you better be ready for his answers. Good luck in the Big Apple. When you hear somebody talk like that about this guy, you know, you can't help but get excited. I mean, how could you not get excited about uh, about that? Uh, that's exactly the kind of guy that, uh, you know, you want on your side. And I could go through the the numbers and whatnot and, and, and what have you. And look, the guy, you know, he's a low walk rate, high strikeout rate. You know, it looks like he's a guy that, you know, when, when you talk about an ace, he may be, even though he has never really throughout his career been maybe quote-unquote considered an ace. Uh, this is a guy that fits in perfectly into this rotation. You've got your two aces when they're healthy with DeGrom and Scherzer. Actually, 1A, 1B. Now you get Bassett. Bassett moves Taiwan Walker, I think, down to the back half of the rotation. Because I think the Taiwan Walker and 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 really what you saw last year, you had the tale of two halves. You had the all-star walker in the first half. 
And then you had the guy who couldn't get anybody out with an ERA of six in the second half. And I know some people said, well, maybe it was the sticky stuff, you know, all the other stuff that's going on. I think it comes back down to Taiwan Walker is a guy that falls somewhere in between. And when you have a guy who gives you six innings, three runs, which is about what I think Taiwan Walker will give you, essentially you have a right-handed Steven Matz. And it's very similar to Matz. I think Walker's a guy that can give you, at times, maybe stretches, but at times, Top of the rotation uh, performances. Look at his splits against some of the better teams. You know, the team that last year beat him up pretty much the most was the Nats. A bad team. They weren't bad the whole year, but they weren't a contender for most of the year. And even in August when the team was spiraling, he had a whip under one. He didn't win a game, but a lot of it was because they couldn't score. So to me, he's in a much better spot there. And now you can put other guys... Uh, exactly where you think they belong. And, and uh, you know, I'll bring up Carlos Carrasco because people say, Mike, what, what about Carlos Carrasco? Carlos Carrasco hasn't had a full productive season in four years. That was the concern I had when they acquired him last year and everybody was penciling him in for top of the rotation. It hasn't happened in a long time. So now all the pressure's off. I mean, I look at, at Carrasco as a number five. That's a number five that, again, just like Walker, can probably provide you top-of-the-rotation performances. Maybe not consistently, but you're not expecting that. And everybody else, Trevor Williams, who I'm bullish on, Jordan Yamamoto, uh, David Peterson, McGill, who I'm very high on, now you've got the depth going down. And then you really get down because, you know, you have 10, 11, you have uh, uh, Buto, Zepucky, all these guys that you have, and I'm sure there's other guys uh, that will stand out at some point. Uh, you, you've got this 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 guy Pena they got off the scrap heap from uh, Anaheim. So right now, starting pitching, which was a concern, uh, is really not at this point. And I still like the offense. I'm not saying I'm uh, the, when I say they need another bat. I'm not I'm not at all saying that they're that it's a deficient offense. There's just some question marks there. The bullpen I don't like. The bullpen is where my main concern is. I, I I do think Adovino helps. Adovino to me is a is a better version of Familia. I know he's closed. I know he's a late inning guy. I know he was somebody the Yankees brought in. But when you have a guy that walks four or five per nine, even with that frisbee slider and the amount of strikeouts he does, I just those guys drive me bananas. It's like another Miguel Castro. Give me a guy that could go out there, throw strikes, get outs, especially late in the game. Runners on base. I don't care how hard you throw. I don't care how many bats you miss. Once you walk, guys, all it takes is one contact from a hitter. And they're all big leaguers. They can make some contact. And away you go on this whole thing. Now, I saw some people on Twitter. I know that the prospect huggers are still out there that were crying over giving up JT Ginn and Adam Aller. And Adam Aller, Rule 5 pick. I mean, give the Mets scouting and development credit. Here's a guy they took off the scrap heap in the minor league Rule 5 draft. And now they flipped him along with Ginn, who was there one of their uh, draft picks uh, under Brody Van Wagenen, for a, a guy that's a top-of-the-rotation guy in Bassett. This is exactly what you use your prospects for. When you're not afraid to go out there and 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 dr- continue to draft well and continue to develop what you have, you don't have to hold on to the one or two guys that you really like. And I think that's been the problem in the past is that the Mets, uh, you know, didn't have the confidence that they had the money to play in the international market, that they wouldn't go over slot in prior years to get the guy that they needed to get, that they, you know, maybe, and I think they've had, you know, with, with Tommy Tenoy and his group, I think they've had a really good scouting 
group for a long, long time. I think the Mets, that's a little underrated part of the organization. I mean, they've traded a ton of guys in deals. Whether you like the deals or not, a ton of guys are sprinkled throughout the big leagues uh, in deals where, you know, maybe these guys are 18 or 19 years old. Look at Simeon Woods Richardson as an example. But what did you really give up here? You gave up Ginn, who, uh, you know, looks to be a middle of rotation type of guy. Adam Aller, who knows what he's going to be. Looks like he's a back-of-the-rotation guy. Probably could have helped this year. You know, you're going to need, like I always say, you know, 10 of 11 starters, double headers, especially with, you know, now there's going to be some of these missed games sprinkled out throughout the this season. But you could find those guys. You could find veterans to do that. And you just don't know who he is. So you're crying over this. This is what you use prospects for. Yes, the Mets have emptied out the capital of their minor league system quite a bit over the last few years in the Stroman deal, trying to go for it and, and what have you. But when you have this owner, and if you don't believe, and I said this on Friday, if you don't believe by now that this owner is committed to winning and he'll do anything to win, he's not flinching at that ultra-competitive tax, that 290 plus million tax. Didn't sound, if you listen to the clips and you heard it, and if you didn't hear it, listen to it again. He's, uh, he's ready to... <laughs> He's ready to go above it. He doesn't care. I mean, he's not going to spend $500 million. But the right move comes, and I think Andy Martino has said it best. The Mets are going to be opportunistic. They're not going to go out there and just say, okay, I'm going to play in you know, the Freddie Freeman market and give him a six-year deal. But if somebody falls to them, and with the supermarket sweep going on with free agency, to me, that's you know where it's going to go. Now, when you look at Bassett, you're going to say, well, Mike, you know, why did they have to give up all these prospects? Couldn't they just go out? Uh, you know, and if they were going to give up prospects, go out, maybe go to the next level. First, I'm not sure Frankie Montas or Luis Castillo are that much better. And the only, you know, guys like Tyler Male, uh, Castillo, guys like that who have extra years of, of control are going to cost more. Shows you how expensive. I said this months ago about Oakland with their three young pitchers. Trading these pitchers and the return they get is going to be so critical to their rebuild. And with Bassett being a free agent at the end of the year, they probably look at him, he's 32, so he's the older one of the group. Let me look real quick, because if you look at the other guys, yeah, Bassett's 32, uh, you know, Manaya is uh, 29, Montos is 28. So he's the guy at his age that's probably, you could make the argument, not going to demand the same prospect capital, but some. So that's what the cost is going to be. And they may hold on to some of these guys going into the season, hoping that contenders, now with expanded wild card, will need an arm and will overpay for these guys. This is their poker chip. And the Mets were going to jump in and said, okay, this is the guy I could get. I've got to give up. And, and there's there's not a single deal where there's no pain. But if you're crying over Pete Crow Armstrong for Baez or JT Ginn or any of these guys, then you don't get what this is all about. This is about right now the Mets, while they're building this world-class, hopefully, player development uh, procurement system, while they continue to use and beef up their analytics department, while they continue to leverage the good scouting and development they've had over the years, they need to build up their big league roster. Their big league roster is where the problem has been over and over because they've never truly built a complete team with the depth that they need, even last year. And now they're really going for it. They Steve Cohen sees an opportunity. He's got a win-now manager. He's got a GM that's from the area who worked for the Yankees, who knows the expectations of the city, who wants to win now. And he's got a brand that has been waiting to explode 
and push itself to the next level with this fan base that has this incredible love. And yet this is your opportunity. Hold it on to JT Ginn with the hope that in two or three years that he's going to be a viable part of this rotation and maybe a back-end guy at that, you know, to to save him because, well, I'll go out and get Michael Pineda. That's the mindset that gets you either just into the wild card and get knocked out or not making the playoffs. And a lot of that mindset is what's held the Mets back many times, including when they had the Manaya years of 06, 07, 08. If you remember, one of the things about those teams was that they were a little bit top-heavy with the 8 to 10 really good players, but as you got to you know, 17 to 25 on the roster, they were lacking. A lot of it was that you know they didn't have a good uh, farm system. They didn't have the same scouting and player development that maybe they have today. They also didn't want to spend at that point. They spent very heavy on the front end of the roster, but not the back end. So I think this is a great deal. Uh, I think this is a guy that, from all the reports I've heard, has the kind of moxie that you're looking for to come here. Um, I think the fans are going to like him. You know, He doesn't have a very long history of success. He's had injuries, and it took him a while to get back from Tommy John's surgery. So there is risk. And look, just you know, channeling Billy Epple, he was in New York when he saw guys like Javier Vasquez and Carl Pavano and A.J. Burnett, guys that were really good in other places, come to the Yankees and not perform, there's always that risk. That's why when I heard, remember we were talking about Sonny Gray, I said there was no chance the Mets are going to go and get Sonny Gray. If if Brian Cashman goes out there and says he's not a New York guy, well, with his protege who was, a, who was around, at, not, not around when Sonny Gray was there, but you know worked under him, when he hears something like that, you think he's going to uh, dispute his old boss? I don't think so. And I told you I thought, thought Castillo was overrated, and I think the prospect capital that you needed to give up to get some of those other guys – was far more painful than anything you saw with JT Ginn and Adam Ali. You know, Aller. I don't. I don't think it matters. I, you guys are worried about the wrong things. The Mets have a very good rotation now. Can it stay healthy? And here's my commitment as we go forward. I'm not going to get crazy about health because everything health is that big. That's always hanging over a team. I love it when writers say, "Well, if they stay healthy." Well, that's you know. That's if the, a rock doesn't fall from the sky, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll survive playing uh, left field. Or, you know, if I don't get into an accident, I'll get to work or the ball game the next day. Well, of course not. You know, everybody, any, that could always happen. That always is hanging over us. So um, I think there'll be a, another time as we get deeper into spring. We got this mixture right now where we have our pit, annual pitchers and catchers show. And you're trying to mix in the end of hot stove, which is kind of fun. Uh, if I like to see one thing, you know, if there was one thing that the Mets need to do is to go out and get some left-handed bullpen help. And no, I don't want them to do it by trading Jeff McNeil or J.D. Davis or, heck, I'm not a big fan of his, Dom Smith, because I think those guys, you need to build their value up because I think that though I'm not a big fan of, of Dom Smith, it's not chopped liver over there. I think J.D. and, and McNeil are really good hitters. And I, I've seen people tweet out and say, oh, you know, go trade him for a lefty reliever. Well, come on. That's giving him away. That's silly. When you got Brad Hand and Andrew Chafin on the market, sign Brad Hand then. But it's amazing if you go up and down the Mets 40-man roster, and I'm looking at it right now. They haven't put the non-roster invitees on here yet, but Joey Lucchese, they got 39 guys on the roster, so they got one spot. And really two because Lucchese's going to go to the 60-day DL. But other than the Zapucky, uh, they don't have any lefties. I'm going up, 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 up and down here. I'm like, am I missing something? It's a very righty roster so they definitely need to go out there and get another lefty I'm not one I know I saw some people say well they have no lefties in the rotation give me five good starters I don't necessarily think you need a lefty I mean I back going back to Thanksgiving I would love to have Steven Matz back but right now 
you look at the whole thing, you know, Bassett's probably better. You know, maybe a health risk because he's had some history of Tommy John, but Bassett's better. I mean, Bassett has, Stephen Matz has not had the kind of season that Bassett had last year in a long time. So maybe that uh, uh, situation where he was turned down uh, turned out more in the Mets' favor. And look, the Mets were going for the gusto when they signed Scherzer. They were trying to get Kevin Gosman. And, you know, that would have been a longer-term commitment. So here with Bassett, you get one year, you get to see what you have. And uh, I know he's 32, so he's a little bit older. So, you know, you might have, you might turn out to, from a long-term commitment, have a little bit more flexibility because I know they're not talking. You still want to uh, potentially re-sign Jacob deGrom and Brandon Nimmo's out there. So that's where you're at. I like the Bassett trade, exactly what they needed. I, I, I was, I was, I'm still concerned about the bullpen. I would like to see if they could be opportunistic with the offense, and, and maybe there's a DH type out there. I know Nelson Cruz is out there. Does not look like they're going to go that route. I think they're going to give Robinson Cano every opportunity to play. I think J.D. Davis and 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 uh, Dom Smith and and McNeil, although I heard their names bandied about, I think right now they they because of where they are with the payroll, I just don't see them going out and, and trading those guys uh, for a reliever. I really don't see that. I don't think Craig Kimbrell or something along those lines just wouldn't make sense. So to me, the only move left is to get some lefty bullpen help, maybe get some depth. It'd be interesting if there's veterans out there that'll take minor league deals and go down to Syracuse for six or eight weeks and, and what have you. It's it's so much unknown because we're in this wild and wacky early spring training hot stove slash spring training situation. So that's where we're at. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return... I want to start to look at some early things that I'm going to be keeping an eye on when it comes to this team. Not necessarily storm clouds. One is a bad thing. One is a good thing. We'll start with the bad because we all know here in New York that Alex Rodriguez was a lightning rod for the Yankees for many, many years. And it was kind of like this engulfed thing around the team. I don't think that the Mets have exactly the same thing, but they may have something like A-Rod. And I think there's one player who really needs to get off to a good start. And no, it's not Robinson Cano. No, it's not Max Scherzer. And it's none of the guys that the Mets signed this offseason. I'll tell you who that is and more right after this. The retirement of Keith Hernandez's number 17 is well-deserved. I often call him the Phil Rizzuto of the Mets because of his folksy nature in the SNY booth. Bob Clappish of The Record joined me on the Talking Mets podcast to shed light on the player Hernandez was while he covered him in the 80s. You couldn't have had painted a more different picture. Uh, you know, I had a former Met teammate. You could probably guess who it is, but tell me that that is not the Keith Hernandez that you see on TV today or in the SNY booth. Keith is a different person. I mean, it, it, he's like a Zen master now. He's so calm. He's so gentle. And as I wrote in my column today, you know, he has the same temperament as his little cat, Haji. I mean, he used to be this ferocious guy, you know, this dark, brooding guy with, you know, the Tom Selleck mustache. And he ran that team. He ran the clubhouse. And Davey was smart enough not to encroach on that. Davey was in the manager's office. That domain was his. But in that room, it was Keith's room. And Davey knew not to, to try and rival that. Keith was in charge of everything that happened on the field. Certainly, he was like a, a an in-game pitching coach. He would go to the mound all the time telling pitchers what to throw. But more than that, he would police the room. He would police the attitude in the room. And uh, and he included the press. If he trusted you and you knew he wouldn't, you wouldn't burn him on the record, he told you exactly what he thought was going on. How many times that, you know, Daryl showed up, hung over to the 
to on a particular day and didn't feel like playing and how what BS that was uh, or who deserved to be benched or who was out too late the night before. I knew everything about that team because Keith trusted me. I mean, we had our fights. I mean, with a guy as volatile as Keith, eventually you'd run afoul of him and you'd have your wars with him. And believe me, we had we had our wars. For a long time, we didn't speak. But if you wanted to cover the Mets in the 80s, you had to be plugged into Keith Hernandez because that man was intense. He was powerful. He wielded that power, sometimes ruthlessly, and he knew everything. He was all-knowing. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Uh, latest edition here of the Talking Mets Podcast. Oh, by the way, before I get to my point of this segment, and I think you kind of know what it's about when I said A-Rod and there's one player looking to prove themselves and it's not Max Scherzer or Jacob deGrom or any of the new guys. Uh, he keep hearing people say Josh Hader. The Mets could want Josh Hader all they want, but why would the Brewers trade him? If anything, do you think after what you saw during the whole collective bargaining negotiations, do you think anybody wants to help the Mets and Steve Cohen? This isn't like 20, 25 years ago when teams, when they needed to dump payroll, they just went to the Yankees and said, George, take this guy. I don't care what you give me. Just I need, I need to shed payroll. And the Yankees would get basically anybody for nothing. It always seems like the Yankees do that. They still do that with prospects because they do a very good job of marketing their prospects. And there's a cachet with the Yankees organization, which I, I think at times now, I, I would think a little bit, is wearing off a little bit. But uh, I don't think Josh Hader is realistic. I think you got Andrew Chafin, you got Brad Hand, you got guys like that. Maybe there's another guy out there on deal that's available that we're not thinking of. But uh, to me, that's it. I mean, I don't think there'll be that many more sexy moves unless something opportunistic happens. Now, I had mentioned A-Rod, and maybe I'm going a little over the top here. But And uh, around this time last year, we were talking about Francisco Lindor and whether he would sign a long-term deal and and that got a little muddy and, and until right before the season started. Steve Cohen struck a deal to pay him about $34 million a year, $340 million contract. A contract that, quite honestly, we knew from the start was probably not a good one. I think Cohen wanted to make his mark. I think he wanted to partner with uh, a player that he somehow connected with. I know they've had dinner, and I think Cohen really tries to connect with his stars. And it sounded like he was even involved with the, the Bassett trade. So Steve Cohen is a hands-on owner, at least right now. And when Lindor signed that agreement, I, I said, look, I don't care. It's just money as long as it doesn't prevent the Mets from making other moves. Now, they've gone on and they've signed Max Scherzer. I mean, they actually have three of the top 10 in highest you know, average salary per year. Max Scherzer, number one, Jacob deGrom, number four, and Francisco Lindor, number nine. And you all know the whole... Lindor narrative from last year got off to a terrible start at about buck 60 in April and really didn't get going until July gets going pulls his quad right after the all-star break he's out pretty much the entire month of August comes back can't hit as the Mets are swooning there in August and then has a fairly good actually a very good September albeit one where you know, nine home runs, 25 RBIs in September. Three homers and five RBIs happened in one night against the Yankees. A great night, a night where I think Lindor kind of had his coming out party. We talked about this on the show 
the next morning about that particular game, how that particular series brought back the Subway series a little bit, something that Juice had been missing. But I think Lindor is a marked man with the fans, and I'll tell you why. I I think if they win and he does poorly, he'll still be scorned because no matter what, when you win, unless things are perfect, the fans are going to find something to worry about and pick on. And, and bad topics and controversial topics always make for better radio and better copy than peace and harmony. We all know that. I think the fact that he's voted against the CBA, and I think there's a lot of fans that don't get and never will and never want to hear it because of the money that the players make, nobody sees what the owners have in assets. They just see the salaries that I just rattled off for, uh, for you. Look, you go to spottrick.com, you could see them, and people are like, wow, that guy's making more in one year than me or my father or my mother or whatever made in a lifetime, and it jives in bananas, and I get that. And then they go to Lindor, and they see the performance last year, which was very pedestrian. He was a guy that was basically a league average hitter and has really been a league average or slightly above league average hitter uh, for a couple of years now. He had one really good, I would say, $34 million a year worth a year, and that was in 2018 when he had almost 40 home runs, drove in over 90 runs, stole 25 bases. I mean, he's a guy that has 30-30 potential, and he won a gold glove in his career. So you know he could have his gold glove potential, and we saw that with the way he played last year. But let's be honest. When you look at last year's stats, and let's just go to fan graphs on this, and I know he's better than some of these guys, but Luis Urias in Milwaukee, Ahmed Rosario in Cleveland, who didn't even play shortstop the whole time, Miguel Rojas, Dansby Swanson, Willie Adamas, uh, Nicky Lopez of Kansas City, Jake uh, Cronenworth. These are guys that had better seasons at shortstop when you rank them by advanced metrics, by wins above replacement, than Francisco Lindor. And then you say, well, Mike, his offense stunk. What about his defense? Well, you know, he's more towards the bottom. I mean, Jay Cronenworth again. Ahmed Rosario was better defensively when you look at his defensive uh, uh, values. Now, I I saw Ahmed Rosario play, and I've seen Francisco Lindor play. There's no comparison. <laughs> Francisco Lindor is better. Rosario was getting better. I know Gary DeSarcina was working with him. But uh, if there was, there was one thing I remember about the Rosario era at shortstop was that it always seemed like a ground ball just was out of his reach. With Lindor, that didn't happen. Now, you know, the shift and the analytics and all that stuff that uh, is coming into play, uh, you know, maybe that helped out a little bit. And I think Lindor, my eyes say he's a lot better than some of the guys that I just rattled off on this list. But, you know, when uh, you know Kevin Newman of the Pirates is severely outperforming you in advanced analytics, uh, well, you know, there's a problem there when you're making $34 million a year. Not to mention the fact that he did not handle his New York transition well. Uh, the whole rat raccoon thing, which I think is more blown up than anything. And it's funny how guys who out the door, former coaches are leaking to the media during dead times to make controversy. Always shows you the character of those people. But this is a big year for Lindor. And the media, much to my surprise, because after what Adam Silver had said during the All-Star break, during the NBA All-Star break, I thought for sure... They were done in the clubhouse. Now, it's probably a vaccination policy, so you can't use any kind of um, um, COVID excuse. Maybe they're going to have them wear masks, the media. I don't know what the, the protocol is going to be, but they're going to be back in the clubhouse. I have to think that the way that they uh, 
credential people for Clubhouse, which has always been rough with the Mets. Independent media doesn't really get Clubhouse access. They'll get press pass, maybe field access. Uh, We'll make it a little bit easier. But it will be interesting because it's been a long time since those guys have been in the clubhouse. And, And the reporting has suffered. I mean, it's been big for guys like me who, quite honestly, the I don't need clubhouse access to do this show for what I do. And 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 I'm not about exposés. And, and really, if you're going to work a clubhouse, you got to really work it every day. You can't pop in and pop out once in a while. It's like anything else. You have to develop relationships. But it will be really interesting to see the dynamic and the leadership in that room. And maybe for Lindor, and this will be my good point, Max Scherzer will take a lot of that off of him because I was reading a lot about Max Scherzer and his integration when he came into the Nationals clubhouse in 2015. And it's the exact opposite. How you know, He came in and ingratiated himself and put himself into uh, a real uh, leadership role off the bat, mainly because of his competitiveness, but also how he elevated everyone else's game. Uh, I've heard good things about Lindor on the field. He's communicative. He's talkative. He looks like he has a lot of energy. But to me, Lindor is an energy player. Lindor is a lot like Jose Reyes. Better, uh, got more power, better defensively. He's a notch above Jose. I think in a lot of ways, Lindor is what maybe you thought Jose could have been. Power-wise, he never really developed that power. He never really developed uh, the the patience at the plate that you would have liked to have seen. But there's a lot. He points more towards Jose Reyes than he does, uh, let's say, A-Rod or uh, other franchise players that you would give $34, $35 million a year. He's not a $35 million a year player. I'm going to tell you that. I never thought he was, and and I could be wrong. Now, look, he's still very young. He's, uh, you know, he's going into his age 28 season, so he's smack in the middle of his prime. But he gets off to a bad start, and he starts to make goofy statements to the media or hides from the media or makes excuses or is responsible for a bunch of losses there. I don't think the fans are going to have much sympathy for him. They're going to think, well, he you know, voted against the collective bargaining agreement, so he wanted more money. That's you know, that's not totally true. It's not really what it means. Uh, they're going to think that. He, he, he's Now, year two, he stinks. He's not the highest paid, paid player on the team, but he's the highest paid positional player, and they're not going to particularly care for him, and that's going to be a problem. Maybe someone like Robinson Cano, who's been around a chaotic Yankees clubhouse, and I... And I really think Cano, and I know he's going to speak to the team this week uh, and kind of get first step in getting back into what is going to be an awkward situation because of the whole PEDs. Maybe having a veteran like Robinson Cano would help. I think Cano was sorely missed on that team last year. Although his bat would have been helpful, I think he's definitely a, a leader, especially for the Latino players. And, and maybe somebody like that who's been around this New York cauldron for so many years and and I don't know if there's anything that could happen here in, with the Mets that didn't happen while Cano, and he, cause he was in the middle of all the A-Rod Jeter stuff. He was in the middle of all that craziness from a very early age, from when he came up in 2005, and all the disappointments and the expectations and the pressure. So to me, Lindor is somebody to watch because I think it could get into this A-Rod situation where not so much off the field, and I don't think Lindor will shoot his mouth off like A-Rod did or get to that level. But he has the propensity to annoy people, maybe because uh, he's he has a small market mindset to dealing with the media, kind of the BS mindset, the smile, 
And a lot of times, unfortunately, nobody wants to see that when the team is in the middle of a losing streak or when you're hitting a buck 60 or you make a big error late in the game. So that's something I'm going to be looking out for early in this spring. That's a story that's going to develop throughout the season. You heard it here first, just like you heard it here that I thought Chris Bassett was one of the better options for the Mets when we talked about pitching options over the offseason. You heard it here first. Lindor is going to be an interesting thing. Now, he gets off to a good start. All will be forgiven, just like Carlos Beltran. Remember, but then Beltran took strike three and you know all that stuff that took a different turn. But that that's a perfect example. You know, Beltran, he's very similar to how Beltran came into the 2006 season. Can he have an MVP type season like Beltran uh, had? And can, unlike Beltran, he perform in the postseason? He'll be loved here forever. Then they'll forget about last year and it won't matter anymore. The rat raccoon won't matter. The goofy smile won't matter. The lying to the press or the, you know, saying the New York fans are bothering him or they're not supporting him, that will all go away. Thumbs down, they'll forget about that. He's got a lot of skeletons already in his New York closet, and he hasn't even just been, he's barely been here a year. So it'll be very interesting to see how that turns out. All right, let's take a quick break. But on the positive note, early thing that I'm looking at, and it's very early, Max Scherzer, his role in the collective bargaining negotiations, how that showed a great amount of leadership. And I was looking back to when he came into Washington, came across an article, and I said, you know what? That's exactly the kind of guy the Mets need in this clubhouse. I'll explain that more right after this. Uh, coming to the parking lot, uh, and you're going to the home side. Uh, so, um, but that's what you got to do. You come in here, you get acquainted with everybody, start learning all the Kobe's names, trainers' names, and uh, just get familiar with, uh, with the complex. Max, you were obviously deeply involved in the negotiations. Is there any moment during it where you wondered, am I going, or, or is it going to be a long time at least until I actually have this day where I'm in some uniform working, for the Mets. Never really thought in those terms. I was always thinking about what's, what was best for baseball, what was best uh, to make the game right uh, and to function properly. So, um, you know, that, that's where my, uh, where my focus was. All right, we're back. So it's got to be surreal if you go to fan graphs and you go back. Oh, let's just go back to... 2018 let's just go back about four years and you look at the starting pitchers and you see who's number one and number two you know who number one is well he's Jacob deGrom you guys know that but you know who's a hair behind him and that's Max Scherzer and by the way number four is Zach Wheeler the guy <laughs> I told you not to sign who I had skepticism about could you imagine three of those guys in the rotation especially with the reasonable deal Wheeler had now I still think in the long run that Wheeler will uh I have questions about his durability but Got to give the guy a ton of credit there. And if you think back to when uh, the Mets had gotten Stroman and they had Wheeler and they had Syndergaard and they had DeGrom and then they had Mats as a number five, I said, you know, the Mets have basically four pitchers that when you look at from an advanced metrics perspective of the top 25 in baseball, and that's really what carried them in the second half of 2019 when they had that really that 86 Mets type of run to almost get themselves into the postseason well, maybe with Bassett, they have a trio that and Bassett, I think, kind of hugs into that top 25, but he certainly can be in that conversation. And then you got guys like Carrasco and Walker who are your back-end guys but could easily give you stretches of top-of-the-rotation performance, albeit I don't think they can consistently do that, and I think one of them in Carrasco is an injury risk. But um, it's exciting. It's exciting. So you've got Max Scherzer now, and we all know what a great pitcher he is, and when he signed – 
And, and look, truth be told, I was the one. If you're going to give a guy $43 million, I said, hey, go out and get two really good pitchers for that money. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I was a little concerned about the fact that he couldn't make the starts in the postseason. He's had some, you know, nicks, you know, a little bit nicked up over the last few years with neck and shoulder and things like that. But by all accounts, he's a guy that keeps himself in shape. He's very confident. Uh, he, you know, he, he seems to know his body. He, and and, and this, this competitive streak, nothing, and you heard a little bit, I think it was Anthony Bonda was talking about how being around DeGrom just for those few weeks when he was in the clubhouse last July, I was telling Mike Puma earlier in the week about how DeGrom and his competitiveness and preparation and focus uh, wore off on him. Could you imagine now having a guy like Max Scherzer? And I'm going to read you a quote. It's an old quote. It's from the Washington Post from the All-Star break in 2015. But this is the kind of impact Scherzer had in the Nats clubhouse when he came over from Detroit. And i got to think he's going to have that presence in the Mets clubhouse, a clubhouse that really needs... Obviously, professionalism. There was some goofy stuff that went on last year. I think some of it, some of it was overblown by the media, but goofy stuff. They've got themselves a a, a, a professional, hard you know what manager, old school manager. I would say uh, the more I hear from Buck Showalter, he's like the Pat Riley of uh, in a lot of ways of, of MLB. But you know, bringing insurers to this clubhouse, and I'm going to read you so. Uh, this is from the Washington Post, about July of 2015, right around the All-Star break. And I'll read you. As soon as he walked in, he had this presence, Gio Gonzalez recently recalled. It was like he had been here five or six years already. Scherzer took charge in spring training, challenging the pitching staff during workouts, running the club's NCAA basketball pool, and introducing teammates to his competitive side on, side on the golf course. For years, we'd have casual games, giving each other mulligans and trash-talking. Nationals closer Drew Storen said it wasn't especially serious. That is, until Scherzer arrived. He took our matches to the next level, Storen said. He made them more intense. We had some pretty fun matches that got pretty serious pretty quick. But that's what he's all about. He's a competitive guy. We see it every fifth day on the mound. Scherzer says he's particularly pleased with his command this season, which has resulted in lower pitch counts and longer outings. He has blah, blah, blah. You get the whole thing. So, you know, he was a guy that... Uh, going into Washington it was maybe a bit laborious and maybe not as efficient, and, and and that's where that goes on. But I think the point, as I read that, and again, seven-year-old article, is that here's a guy that went into the Nationals clubhouse, a team that was good but had some disappointments and had a disappointing 2015, if you remember, because of course you remember because you're a Mets fans, and you remember how the Mets blew by them in the second half. And I've said this, and I said this a couple of times, and if, 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 I'm, if you're not hearing it for the first time, I apologize, but I think it's important. Max Scherzer showed me a ton on that Saturday night, second game of the doubleheader, that last weekend series against the Mets when the Nats were completely out of it, and he went out there that Saturday night, and he dominated the Mets. He no-hit them. The Mets couldn't sniff a hit, and he looked angry at the end. It was almost like he was pissed that the Nats were playing for nothing, and he was going to go out there and show them what it's all about. And sure enough, I mean, they wound up winning the World Series a few years later. Uh, that carried over into the following year when the Nats reclaimed their NLE's throne. And, and, and basically, even though they, they couldn't get it done in the postseason up until 2019, uh, you know, he sets the tone. Uh, now he's on the, on the Mets side, and you got him and DeGrom, a couple of competitive guys out there at the top of the mound. And what you're hearing about Bassett, you know, that he kind of falls into that. When Dave Stewart gives you 
those kind of kudos. That's an exciting threesome if they can, again, I hate to keep saying if they stay healthy. I've got to follow my own credo. Not going to keep saying, I'm not going to make predictions and caveat everything if they stay healthy. It's to know if I drive from A to B and I don't get to an accident, I'll get to the supermarket. Well, yeah, Mike, of course. So we got to you know, leave it out there. Drive safe, right? Do your prep, do your work. Hope that your body stays in shape and your body holds up and you should be fine, right? So there you go. So in a lot of ways with Scherzer coming in, and I think when you look at what the players wound up really winning in the CBA negotiations with Scherzer at the helm, it was really for the little guy. And I think a lot of what Scherzer was, why he voted against the final proposal I think Scherzer felt that they could have gotten more and that they could have pushed for more. And and I think ultimately, as you get into the next CBA, the players are going to continue to push and push because they know there's a lot more out there. There's a lot more of a piece of the pie that they deserve that they can get. But he continuously talked about the early years and the early guys, the guys who are pre-arved, the guys who are just coming up, uh, guys like that. And, and I think the things that they didn't get and the part that they – probably wanted to push a little bit more was on the competitive balance tax and forcing teams to spend, which is going to make a lot more guys like Max Scherzer make $43 million a year. I mean, let's face it. The Mets are going to have to play in this. Steve Cohen's going to have to play in this ultra competitive 290 million super tax. When you have a $43 million a year, one a ace, a $34 million a year, one a ace, one B in DeGrom. So already got $77 million tied up into two pitchers. And then you got your $34 million shortstop. You've already got $100 million in three guys. Got to feel the team. Player development's going to be huge. And I know what you're going to say. Well, you just traded away a pitcher for Bassett. Well, guys, you know what? There are other pitchers. There are other guys that they're going to develop. And they have a, a number of draft picks this year. I think they actually, if they go above the tax, they drop like 10 slots in the draft or something like that. So maybe that's why they won't go over. I don't know exactly. I, the rules are still kind of developing. But the point here is, is that you bring an ultra-competitive guy. Listen to what the Nats said. I know that's an old article. You bring him into this clubhouse, that automatically kind of negates some of the pressure that I think Lindor had last year. Because DeGrom, as competitive and as a focused guy, he is he's a pretty quiet guy. Now, I don't know how in-your-face he is or how much of that kind of alpha he is in the clubhouse. You don't hear too much about him in that sense. Scherzer, to me, is that guy. And when you look at the position players, you know, Pete is a happy-go-lucky guy. McNeil has always seems to be in his head. You know, Lindor, we talked about. You know, Canna and Escobar, Marte, they're just coming in here. Nimmo is a really good run creator, but you know, he, he's kind of a, you know, sometimes he comes across as, as a goofy guy in a good way. So you don't have that uber personality there. Now, you have that in the, in, in, on the bench in, in Showalter, but you need that in your clubhouse, and I think Scherzer's that guy, and I think that might help Lindor a little bit because the focus is going to be on him a lot. In a lot of ways, the pressure's on him because he's coming from a division rival. I mean, if he was, unlike, I mean, the only thing that would make it harder is if he was coming from the Yankees. But he's coming from a division rival, and he's going to be out there every fifth day, and, and there's going to be a lot of focus in on him. Now, Lindor will play every day, and you'll see more of him, but at the beginning, I think Scherzer will be more of that cover for Lindor. And I don't think he's going to shrink from the New York market. I really don't. I keep going back to that Saturday night. And if you don't remember it, go back to baseball reference, the second game of a doubleheader. 
meant absolutely nothing to the to the season. Absolutely nothing. And he went out there and he dominated the Mets. And uh, he showed me a lot that night. So I think Max Scherzer, in a way, is going to bring, and the more I read about him, is going to bring some dynamic. I mean, he's already told Buck Showalter, uh, let Jake start. I mean, think about that. Coming in, deferring to, to DeGrom. We'll see how that goes because, you know, obviously DeGrom is who says he's healthy, hasn't spoken to the media yet. And uh, and who knows, as I scroll Twitter as I do this show, to, you know, on a late Sunday night, let's see if there's any moves being made. you got to kind of, you know, n- news is coming in fast and furious, so, you know, these shows could go stale pretty quick. But anywho, um, you know, that's kind of the other. That's, you know, the, the, the bad is the Lindor situation, which could go bad. But I think the good is Scherzer. And if there was going to be a guy that wasn't going to have the New York first-year-itis, it's Scherzer. And they really, Mets can't afford him, too. Not with the kind of money he's making. And uh, this really can't be a bust of a contract because it'll be an albatross. It won't be a long-term contract, but it'll be there a while. So, anyway, a lot of good stuff. Uh, I think we'll hear from Scherzer more. I think his leadership during uh, the collective bargaining talks and will ingratiate himself to all sorts of players in that clubhouse. And anybody who comes in and can add that competitive, uber-competitive nature to the pitching staff, that just you know is infectious throughout the clubhouse. That's a great guy to have around. That's a great start to uh, the journey here as the Mets try to uh, you know meld themselves into a playoff team and hopefully a championship club. All right, let's take a quick break. I'll come back. Final thoughts. want to touch quickly on, do you know that you're going to have a new schedule in baseball starting next year? We'll have that in final thoughts right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. So before I wrap up here, I don't know if you guys read this, but I was reading over at The Athletic Jason Stark, and he was recapping the you know, a lot of the changes with the playoffs after the lockout, the CBA. And, and it turns out that... They're making some changes to the schedule, and I had I'd heard about this from somebody in baseball, but I haven't seen it broken down. But starting next year, everybody's going to play everybody else at least once in baseball. So the Mets will play the Angels every year. They'll play the Indians every year. You'll get to see every team. You're going to get a flavor of every team. It's going to pretty much be like the NBA on a modified. Now, in the NBA, you play one home game and one road game, and I saw Howie Rose kind of lament that because it'll mean more interleague uh, play. Essentially, you're going to play 56 games against your division. So you'll play each, you know, each of your divisional opponents 14 times. You'll play the other 10 league opponents 60 times, so you'll play 3-3. Three and three. So you'll be you know, basically a home-and-home home series. And then you'll play three times. You'll play every other American League team except your you know, interleague rival, like the Mets will play the Yankees four times. And I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, I'm glad that they put more of an emphasis in the past. I think you had less of an emphasis. I think you only played, back in the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken, you only played your division opponent 9 or 11 times or 12 times. You want to play as many as you can against your in-division opponent. In in some ways, 
I look at this as balancing out some of those awful divisions where a team gets to feast because they play the extra five games against you know, t- you know 10 games or 15 games. You know, if you were in the AL Central for years, you had teams like Detroit and Kansas City and even the White Sox for a while, they, you know, would just they would be feasted on. And, you know, last year the Mets, you know, the Nats were pretty bad. And for a while Miami was pretty bad in, in, in those divisions and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I don't really have a problem with it. I know that everyone's going to say it's going to kind of muddy the waters with the National League and the American League. I think it's a good thing. I think it's part of growing the game, even though you have cable and you have ways to stream and watch MLB packages. If you want to get people to come to the ballpark, and I'm talking about not the diehards, you know, there's not 50,000 diehards that have come to the ballpark 81 times a year. They're far less than that. They're going to want to see Mike Trout. They're going to want to see Shahai Otani. Um, they may not want to see two extra games of the Yankees. They may want to see, you know, the Red Sox fan. I know that Mets fans don't like hearing this, but the Red Sox fan may want to travel to City Field to see the new ballpark to watch the Red Sox play there. Uh, you know, um, you know, things like that. I, I actually like this. I've actually been proponent, and as far as you know, I'm not that progressive when it comes to bigger bases and ghost runners and ghost wins and seven inning double headers. Although the ghost runner kind of started to create some extra excitement. I thought it was, it was growing on me a little bit, but I knew it was carnival and I knew it just, it was just too much for me to accept. And I know that they're looking at banning shifts and things like that. And I I wish they would just let the game. I don't think the game is at the neutral zone trap or hand checking point of the NBA and NHL, but it may be, we'll see this year. Uh, I'd like to see them work it out organically. Those leagues could not, but baseball is a different sport. Uh, what I what I do think is that looking at creating more of an NBA style league with more regional divisions, and if you're going to do this, I mean, you could still call it the National League and American League if you want to do that for purposes of tradition. But I mean. Are you really, you know, Eastern Conference, Western? I've always been a proponent of an Eastern and Western Conference. I really have, actually. I don't know if that'd completely work out. I'd have to play it out on paper. And maybe when we have some time during the season, if you want to go into that, you know, if the lockout was going to go on and on and on, it was something I might have done. It's not really relevant right now. But I've always been a proponent of an Eastern and Western Conference. And I think at one time at the old NYBD that I used to run and write for, uh, at its height of its popularity, we, we had done something like that. And it got a very polarizing debate. You know, people kind of loved it or hated it. I'm a traditionalist, so I do I think losing the National League and the American League would have a certain amount of sting to it. But I'd rather do that than have bigger bases or ghost runners or ghost wins or banning the shift or having home, I mean, home run derbies decide the All-Star game. Why? Oh, jeez. You know, play 10 innings, call it a tie, and go home. Could you please? I mean... One thing, and I don't want to go too deep into this because we got to wrap up here. One thing I don't get, and I, is All Star games have been turned to complete garbage. Even the NBA one, I know they've made a whole bunch of changes. I just NFL one was always bad. I, I don't know what happened to them. I mean, they were actually a fun event when I was a kid back in the eighties, and then looked at it, and, and and I know maybe it's the cable thing, but over the course of time, it's just I don't know. I don't think there's any way of fixing it. If they ever get to the point where there's robo-umps or, or home run derbies deciding games, that it looks like Sega Genesis 
or Nintendo Wii, and I'm definitely dating myself because I don't know what are what is the new popular ones? PlayStation. What 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 are, what do kids play video games now on? I don't even know. Tells you how much I know. So anyway, all right. Well, that's what I got for you. This is kind of our a little different type of pitchers and catchers show. It's the go time show. It's go time. The 2022 Mets journey has begun. We talked a little bit about the Chris Bassett trade. I didn't really get into Adam Adovino. I think you kind of heard my thoughts on that. Not a bad signing. I think the Mets still need bullpen help. I think they'll be opportunistic. Who knows? There could be a, an emergency show just like we did on Friday because the Mets go out and they sign Kyle Schwarber. We don't know. We'll see where this all goes. But uh, it's going to be an interesting season, and the Mets did not disappoint. And if there's one thing you took away, I told you on Friday, that Steve Cohen loves his customers, loves his team, loves his fans is that under Steve Cohen, the Mets are a team that is going to go for it and be in the mix and be interesting. And that's great for this show. That's great to watch baseball in the summer. You can't ask for more than that. All right. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you to the good friends over at TheRisingApple.com and the fan-sided podcasting network. Till next week, be well. Enjoy some spring training, everybody. Take care. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.